welcome to this reading of the Sioux City Journal for Friday, January 19th. I'm your reader, Mark Bedford. We'll start with the weather. Today it'll be mostly sunny and colder with a high of 7 degrees. Tonight will be mainly clear and frigid with a low of minus 24 degrees. Saturday will be frigid with periods of sun and a high of 0 degrees. And now we turn to local and state news stories. Clearing the streets. Residents must remove snowbound vehicles to avoid towing and fines. Dolly A. Butts reports from Sioux City. Sioux City police say residents need to do a better job of removing snowbound vehicles from city streets and obeying the emergency snow ordinance after multiple rounds of heavy snow and strong winds walloped the region. Over the past week, at least 125 snowbound vehicles have been tagged in the city, according to data provided by the Sioux City Police Department. If you drive around pretty much any side street in Sioux City, you're going to see a number of snowbound vehicles, Community Policing Sergeant Tom Gill said Thursday. Make sure you get those vehicles off the streets and obey the snow ordinance if there's an emergency snow ordinance. The reason is we need to get those streets cleared. It's hard for the plows to get through, especially a side street that's narrow. The number of vehicles tagged between January 11th and 9.45 a.m. Thursday is likely higher than 125. As Gill said, officers may tag a vehicle but not write a report. He said reports have been written on 125 snowbound vehicles. He said 58 snowbound vehicles were towed over that time period. A lot of officers will just put the 24-hour sticker on there. That sticker gives that person 24 hours to get it moved or it will get towed. Some officers will do the sticker and write a report. That's where you get the 125. So there's been 125 reports written for snowbound vehicles, Gill said. Gill explained. When officers learn of a snowbound vehicle, Gill said they first try to contact the owner to get it moved right away. If they can't get a hold of the owner or the owner can't dig out the vehicle, he said officers will call for a tow truck. While Gill described the sticker as a 24-hour courtesy, he said a snowbound vehicle that is blocking a city plow will be towed even if it doesn't have a sticker on it. He said all plow drivers need to do to get a vehicle towed is call police. Gill noted that the department also has a civilian code enforcement officer who primarily tags snowbound vehicles and writes corresponding reports on those vehicles Monday through Friday. After tagging a vehicle, he said the code enforcement officer returns to the site 24 hours later. If the vehicle has not been moved, Gill said the code enforcement officer will have the vehicle towed. Gill said it's nice having a code enforcement officer on staff because officers don't always like to have to call for a tow truck. You have to wait quite a while for a tow truck to get there, especially in this kind of weather. That's why officers don't like to tow vehicles. That's the last thing they would want to do. They would rather try to get a hold of the owner to move it, he said. If the officer calls for a tow, that means he's got to stay there until the tow is done. That could take him almost an hour and a half, close to two hours depending on the weather and how busy the tow truck service is to get back on the street.
Since the city contracts with Meyer Towing for tow service, Gill said Meyer is the only towing service officers can use to remove snowbound vehicles. If all their trucks are busy, then that officer is going to be waiting there for quite a while. The tow truck won't come and do it if there's no officer there, he said. Gill said the cost to release a towed vehicle is $35. He said the owner must come to the police department to pay the fee and to show proof of ownership, as well as a valid ID at the time. Meyer Towing will charge them $19 for a normal tow, according to Gill. If they have to winch it, it's more than that. I'm not sure how much more. Then they also charge them $12 a day for a storage fee, he said. And in related news... More snow returns to Sioux City. Gusty winds, bitter cold to follow this weekend. From Sioux City. Old Man Winter isn't done yet, as Siouxland received several inches of new white stuff by the end of Thursday. A winter weather advisory is in effect until 6 a.m. Friday for Ida, Plymouth, and Woodbury counties in Iowa, Dakota County in Nebraska, and Hutchinson, Clay, Bonhomme, Union, Clay, and Yankton in South Dakota. Sioux City received about three inches of new snow Thursday. According to Matthew Myers, a meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Sioux Falls, this fast-moving system landed in Metro Sioux City during the afternoon hours, moving out of the area by about 6 p.m. Myers said winds of 5 to 15 miles per hour turned gusty and temperatures fell throughout the day. Due to gusting winds, patchy blowing snow significantly reduced visibility. Lows dropped to around minus 3. Northwest winds gusting to as high as 30 miles per hour sent wind chill values crashing to a low of minus 21. While Friday will see the return of sunny skies, the daytime will not go above 5 above. Friday night will be especially treacherous, with lows for Siouxland are expected to drop to around 21 below, Meyer said. Wind chill values will drop to around 28 below. However, Siouxland will see a bit of a warm-up by the weekend. Saturday will remain cold with a high of zero, but Sunday's high will top off at around 25, Meyer said. By Monday and Tuesday, daytime highs will finally be above freezing. More dampers missing in New Jail. Caitlin Yamada reports from Sioux City. Two more fire dampers are missing from the new Woodbury County Law Enforcement Center. On Tuesday, the Law Enforcement Center Authority announced two more fire dampers are needed in the new facility, adding to the 38 found missing in August, the major cause of a seven-month delay in the project. One fire damper, one motorized damper, and one diffuser were found missing, said Shane Albrecht of the Baker Group, a consultant for the project. A project change directive was approved to begin the process of installation. Previously, a compliance officer for a Houseman Construction, the Lincoln, Nebraska-based general contractor, was the first to discover the missing 38 dampers. Kevin Rost of Goldberg Group Architects said the newly missing dampers were missed by the engineers and inspector, but found by C.W. Suter. No cost was discussed regarding the missing dampers. The authority also approved a contract with Resource Consulting Engineers of Ames, Iowa for nine, pardon me, $9,400 on Tuesday. 
the scope of their work is to review proposed changes from the design team, including revised air and water flow rates to multiple pieces of equipment throughout the building, according to the contract. During the meeting, it was indicated that after the work is complete, the engineer will be used to review other aspects of the project. Albrecht said this firm has previously worked with the county. Pillen makes taxes the centerpiece of speech. From Lincoln, Nebraska. Governor Jim Pillen pledged in his State of the State speech Thursday to work with lawmakers as long as it takes to cut property taxes 40% this year. The governor delivered his speech to the Nebraska legislature along with his proposed budget updates and a handful of new initiatives. He started roughly 45 minutes later than planned because a group of senators were speaking against plans for developing a North Omaha business park. In his speech, Pillen vowed to cut government regulation, focus business incentives on childcare and housing, and protect women in athletics from having to compete with transgender women. He urged lawmakers to join him in those quests. If we look beyond localized interests and set politics aside, and instead put the best interests of Nebraska as our sole guiding principle, I have no doubt that we can win for our agriculture, our businesses, our taxpayers, our kids, and our future, he said. But Pillen left no doubt that property taxes are his top focus. He declared them to be the state's biggest economic problem and said they have been hurting farmers, ranchers, homeowners, and businesses for most of our lifetimes. Nebraska currently ranks seventh in the U.S. for highest property taxes, he said. High property taxes hurt every Nebraskan in every part of our state. It must be fixed now, he told lawmakers, adding one of his favorite lines. Property taxes are so out of whack, you don't even need to own property to be adversely affected. Pillen offered new, few new details about how he plans to address the problem. He said his goal is to cut the amount of property taxes paid by Nebraskans from $5 billion to $3 billion, using a combination of tax shifts and stricter limits on local governments. Half of the $2 billion is already accounted for. Roughly $250 million would come from legislation last year that eliminated property taxes for community colleges and replaced them with state aid. Another $750 million would come from repurposing the income tax credits that are available to offset school property taxes paid. Currently, about 30% of the amount allocated for those income tax credits go unclaimed. Pillen wants to front load. Pardon me. Pillen wants to front load those credits, meaning the money would be sent directly to local governments to replace property taxes that should bring down tax bills sent to property owners. He wants to distribute another $1 billion using a similar mechanism, but the source for that money has yet to be determined. State Senator Ben Hansen of Blair said the true amount of property tax cuts will be determined over the remaining 49 days of the session through the tax bills that make it through the legislature and to Pillen's desk. Pillen previously floated the idea of raising state sales taxes by two cents to a nation-leading 7.5 cents. He has since backed off from the idea but hasn't completely closed the door on it. Speaking to reporters later, Pillen said he is supportive of all options, including a rate increase. 
He said all sales tax exemptions are on the table except those that would make Nebraska less competitive or that would harm people on fixed incomes and the elderly. He would not change the long-standing policy of exempting food items. He mentioned several bills introduced this week that would apply sales taxes to a number of now-exempt goods and services, including candy, pop, accounting services, business legal services, data centers, veterinary care, specialty livestock services, storage, and moving services. He said he believes Nebraskans would support paying more in sales taxes if that shift would mean lower property taxes. Past proposals to eliminate sales tax exemptions have drawn crowds of opponents. There's a big attitudinal adjustment in the state of Nebraska, Pillen said, adding that there is a recognition that to fix the problem, we all have to give something. CORE predicts low runoff in River Basin. Nick Hytrack reports from Sioux City. Much-needed precipitation in the latter half of 2023 helped push runoff into the Missouri River to above-normal levels. The same is not expected for the new year. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has forecast 2024 runoff into the river basin above Sioux City at 20.1 million acre-feet, 78% of the average of 25.7 MAF. The forecast is based on runoff trends, dry soil conditions, and below-normal plains and mountain snowpack. Mountain snowpack that feeds the upper river basin when it melts in the spring currently ranges from 47% to 62% of average. More than half of the mountain snow typically falls from January 1st to mid-April. Water storage in the river's six reservoirs remains below the flood control zone, and the Corps expects to begin the 2023 runoff season on March 1st at 53.3%. MAF, below the flood control zone that starts at 56.1 MAF. Despite the lower storage numbers, enough water remains for water supply needs, the Corps said. Weather and river conditions continue to be monitored, and releases from Gavin's Point Dam will be adjusted to the extent practical to help mitigate any negative effects of the cold weather. We know the importance of our operations to water supply, John Remus, chief of the Corps' Missouri River Basin Water Management Division, said in a news release. Releases from Gavin's Point Dam near Yankton, South Dakota, were reduced to the winter rate of 30, pardon me, 13,000 cubic feet per second on December 9th. Releases were increased on January 8th to 15,000 CFS to help maintain levels for water supplies because of ice forming on the river during frigid weather conditions. Forecasts can change dramatically over the course of a year. A year ago, the Corps forecast 2023 runoff at 81% of average. The year ended with 30.4 MAF of runoff, which is 118% of average. Occupant charged with setting house fire. Nick Hytrek reports from Sioux City. The occupant of a home damaged by fire earlier this month has been charged with intentionally setting the blaze. Victor Montepecu de Leon, 31, was arrested Wednesday and booked into the Woodbury County Jail on charges of second-degree arson and first-degree criminal mischief. Both charges are Class C felonies that carry 10-year prison sentences.
Firefighters responded to the fire at 6.24 a.m. on January 8th at 1114 Jennings Street. The two-story house was red-tagged as unfit for occupation because of heavy fire and smoke damage. Montepicue de Leon was alone inside the home at the time of the fire and was transported to Mercy One Siouxland Medical Center, where he was treated for smoke inhalation. According to a complaint filed in Woodbury County District Court, Montepicue de Leon did not give paramedics his real last name, then told emergency room staff his real name and confessed that he started the fire. The fire began in his bedroom, and his clothing tested positive for accelerants, as did the fire's point of origin. According to court documents, Montepicue de Leon was reported to be suicidal the night before, but refused medical attention and was left with family at the Jennings Street home. He told police that on the morning of the fire, he was suicidal, under the influence of methamphetamine, and had overdosed on prescription drugs. He couldn't recall how the fire started, but didn't deny starting it, court documents said. The fire caused more than $50,000 in damage to the house. And now these stories in national and world news. Department of Justice says police fumbled. New report identifies cascading failures in response to massacre from Uvalde, Texas. Police officials who responded to the deadly Uvalde, Texas elementary school shooting waited far too long to confront the gunman, acted with no urgency in establishing a command post, and communicated inaccurate information to grieving families, according to a Justice Department report released Thursday that identifies cascading failures in law enforcement's handling of the massacre. The Justice Department report the most comprehensive federal accounting of the maligned police response to the May 24, 2022 shooting at Robb Elementary School, catalogs a sweeping array of training, communication, leadership, and technology problems that federal officials say contributed to the crisis lasting far longer than necessary. Had law enforcement agencies followed generally accepted practices in active shooter situations and gone right after the shooter and stopped him, lives would have been saved and people would have survived, Attorney General Merrick Garland said Thursday at a news conference in Uvalde, after Justice Department officials briefed family members on the findings of the investigation. The nearly 600-page Justice Department report adds to the public understanding of how officers failed to stop an attack that killed 19 children and two staff members. The problems began almost immediately with a flawed assumption by officers at the scene that the shooter was barricaded even as he continued to fire shots. That mindset permeated throughout much of the incident response as police, rather than rushing inside the classrooms to end the carnage, waited more than an hour to confront the gunman in what the report called a costly lack of urgency. The gunman, Salvador Ramos, was killed about 77 minutes after police arrived on the scene, when a tactical team finally went into a classroom to take him down. The flawed initial response was compounded in the following days by an ineptitude that added to family members' anguish, according to the report. A county district attorney told families that they would need to wait for autopsy reports before death notifications were made, prompting some to yell, What, our kids are dead? No, no. In other cases, families were incorrectly told that a child survived when they had not. At one point, 
An official told waiting families that another bus of survivors was coming, but that was untrue. Strikes against Houthis continue. Pakistani retaliation in Iran kills at least nine, raising regional unease. From Washington, U.S. forces conducted a fifth strike Thursday against Iranian-backed Houthi rebel military sites in Yemen as President Joe Biden acknowledged that the American and British bombardment had yet to stop the militants' attacks on vessels in the Red Sea that have disrupted global shipping. The latest strikes destroyed two Houthi anti-ship missiles that were aimed into the southern Red Sea and prepared to launch, U.S. Central Command said in a statement posted to social media. Biden said the U.S. would continue the strikes, even though so far they have not stopped the Houthis from continuing to harass commercial and military vessels. When you say working, are they stopping the Houthis? No. Are they going to continue? Yes, Biden said in an exchange with reporters before departing the White House for a domestic policy speech in North Carolina. Hours after Biden spoke, Houthi Brigadier Brigadier General Yahya Sari said in a recorded statement that its forces carried out another missile attack against the U.S.-owned cargo ship Kem Ranger. Sari said the attack took place in the Gulf of Aden, the waters just south of Yemen. That attack did not affect the ship, U.S. Central Command said late Thursday. Thursday's strikes came after the U.S. military fired another wave of missiles the prior night against 14 Houthi-controlled sites. Despite sanctions and military strikes, including a large-scale operation carried out by U.S. and British warships and warplanes that hit more than 60 targets across Yemen, the Houthis keep harassing commercial and military ships. The U.S. strongly warned Iran to cease providing weapons to the Houthis. Meanwhile, Pakistan launched airstrikes Thursday against alleged militant hideouts inside Iran, killing at least nine people as it retaliated for a similar attack days earlier by Iran and raising tensions with its neighbor as conflict across the region escalates. The unprecedented attacks by both Pakistan and Iran on either side of their border appeared to target Baluch militant groups with similar separatist goals. The countries accuse each other of providing a haven to the groups. Netanyahu opposes any Palestinian state plan. Israeli Prime Minister vows to press ahead until Hamas destroyed. From Jerusalem, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Thursday rejected U.S. calls to scale back Israel's military offensive in the Gaza Strip or take steps toward the establishment of a Palestinian state after the war, drawing an immediate scolding from the White House. The tense back and forth reflected what has become a wide rift between the two allies over the scope of Israel's war and its plans for the future of the beleaguered territory. We obviously see it differently, White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby said. Netanyahu spoke just a day after U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said Israel would never have genuine security without a pathway toward Palestinian independence. 
In a nationally televised news conference, Netanyahu struck a defiant tone, repeatedly saying that Israel would not halt its offensive until it realizes its goals of destroying Gaza's Hamas militant group and bringing home all remaining hostages held by Hamas. He rejected claims by a growing chorus of Israeli critics that those goals are not achievable, vowing to press ahead for many months. Congress votes to avert a government shutdown. Stopgap bill will fund operations at current levels to early March. From Washington, Congress sent President Joe Biden a short-term spending bill on Thursday that will avert a looming partial government shutdown and fund federal agencies into March. The House approved the measure 314 to 108, with opposition coming mostly from the more conservative members of the Republican conference. The action came a few hours after the Senate voted 77 to 18 to pass the bill. The measure extends current spending levels and buys time for the two chambers to work out their differences over a full-year spending bills for the fiscal year that began in October. The temporary measure will run to March 1st for some federal agencies. Their funds were set to run out Friday. It extends the remainder of government operations to March 8th. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said the president would sign the resolution. Speaker Mike Johnson, a Republican from Louisiana, has been under pressure from his right flank to scrap a $1.66 trillion budget price tag he reached with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer this month for the spending bills. Johnson insists he will stick with the deal, and GOP centrists stood behind him. Hunter Biden agrees to private deposition. From Washington, Hunter Biden agreed to appear before House Republicans for a private deposition next month, ending months of defiance from the president's son, who previously insisted on testifying publicly. The House Oversight Committee announced Thursday that the two parties agreed for Hunter Biden to sit for a deposition February 28th. Hunter Biden's legal team confirmed news of the agreement Thursday night. Two committees reiterated that they intend to have him testify publicly sometime after his deposition. The deal concludes months of back and forth between President Joe Biden's son and Republicans investigating his overseas business dealings for over a year in a so far futile effort to connect it to his father. Columnist concludes testimony in Trump's suit. From New York, with former President Donald Trump not in the courtroom Thursday, a columnist who accused him of sexually attacking her concluded her testimony with, with an emphatic denial that she benefited from publicity that followed the allegations. A Trump attorney tried to show the jury that E. Jean Carroll achieved the fame she desired after the publication of a memoir accusing Trump of raping her in a store dressing room in the 1990s. She responded, No, my status was lowered. I am partaking in this trial to bring my own reputation and status back. The testimony came on the third day of a trial in Manhattan Federal Court that will determine what damages, if any, Trump owes for remarks he made about Carol when he was president. A jury already found Trump liable for sexually abusing Carol in 1996 and defaming her after his presidency. Trump was in Florida for his mother-in-law's funeral Thursday. And these news briefs. Georgia. 
the judge presiding over the Georgia prosecution of former President Donald Trump and others for efforts to overturn the 2020 election, set a February 15th hearing Thursday on a motion alleging Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis was romantically involved with a special prosecutor she hired for the case. School shooting. A judge sentenced Preston Walls, 19, to 65 years in prison Thursday for killing two students in a January 23rd shooting at a Des Moines alternative school and wounding the founder. He must pay $150,000 to the students' families. <clears throat> Election case. The federal judge overseeing the paused 2020 election interference case against Donald Trump rejected his lawyer's bid Thursday to hold special counsel Jack Smith's team in contempt, but said no further substantive court filings should be submitted without permission. Public health. Wastewater testing does a good job at detecting MPOX infections. U.S. health officials said in a report Thursday that bolsters a push to use sewage to track more diseases. Mayorkas, laying groundwork for impeachment of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, a House panel heard Thursday from parents seeking to link border policy to their daughter's deaths and a law professor warning against the effort. And finally, Ukraine war. Belgorod, Russia, canceled its traditional Orthodox Epiphany festivities Friday due to the threat of cross-border attacks by Ukraine. Once again, you are listening to this reading of the Sioux City Journal for, for Friday, January 19th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And now we turn to sports stories starting off with the NBA. Yusevic DeRozan tallied 24 each as Bulls' top Raptors. From Toronto, Nikola Vucevic had 24 points and 13 rebounds. DeMar DeRozan scored 24 points against his former team. And the Chicago Bulls beat the Toronto Raptors 116-110 on Thursday night. Colby White added 23 points to help the Bulls snap a four-game losing streak in Toronto. Patrick Williams scored 12 points, and Alex Caruso and Ayo Dosunmu each had 10. Chicago outscored Toronto 74-50 in the paint. Scotty Barnes had 31 points, one shy of his career best for Toronto. R.J. Barrett added 17 points. Knicks 113, Wizards 109. Jalen Brunson had 41 points, 8 rebounds, and 8 assists, leading New York to a home victory over Washington. Brunson scored 18 of the Knicks' 21 points during a lengthy stretch of the fourth quarter, helping them push a one-point lead to 105-97 with 1 minute 26 seconds remaining. He finished 14 for 27 from the field and scored at least 30 for the second straight night after missing two games because of a bruised left calf. Julius Randle added 21 points for the Knicks, while Dante DiVincenzo and O.G. Anunobi each had 19. The Knicks improved to 8-2 since Anunobi Anunobi joined the lineup January 1st after being acquired from Toronto. Thunder 134, Jazz 129. Shai Gilgeus-Alexander scored 31 points, 
Jalen Williams had 11 of his 27 points in the fourth quarter, and Oklahoma City snapped host Utah's six-game winning streak. Williams, who shot 11 of 14, made four three-pointers and has scored at least 25 points in three consecutive games. Kaysen Wallace scored a season-high 16 points, and Josh Giddy had 20 points and 10 rebounds for the Thunder, who had 19 fast-break points. Timberwolves 118, Grizzlies 103. Anthony Edwards scored 26 of his 28 points in the second half. Rudy Gobert had 17 points, 10 rebounds, and a season-high tying six blocks, and West-leading Minnesota beat injury-ravaged Memphis at home. Naz Reed scored 20 points, and Mike Conley had 17 points and 10 assists for the Wolves, who outscored the Grizzlies 37-17 in the fourth quarter. Pacers 126, Kings 121. Benedict Mathurin scored 25 points, and shorthanded Indiana held off Sacramento at Golden 1 Center. Indiana was without newly acquired forward Pascal Siakam, who had yet to join the team following a trade with Toronto, while fellow All-Star Tyrese Halliburton missed his fifth straight game because of a strained left hamstring. In other NBA news, Warriors Mavs off after assistant death from San Francisco. The Dallas Mavericks game at the Golden State Warriors scheduled for Friday night has been postponed following the death of Warriors assistant coach Dejan Milojevic, the NBA announced Thursday. The date for the rescheduled game will be announced later. Milojevic, a mentor to two-time NBA MVP Nikola Jokic and a former star player in his native Serbia, died Wednesday in Utah after suffering a heart attack. Milojevic was part of the staff that helped the Warriors win the 2022 NBA championship. He was 46. Milojevic died in Salt Lake City, where he was hospitalized Tuesday after the medical emergency happened during a private team dinner. Ujiri, Koloko's status in the hands of the NBA, from Toronto. Raptors president Masai Ujiri said Thursday that the health status of former Toronto Center Christian Coloco is in the hands of the NBA. Late Thursday, Shams Charania of The Athletic reported that Coloco is suffering from a blood clot issue and has been referred to the league's fitness to play panel, preventing him from playing for or practicing with an NBA team. The 23-year Pardon me, the 23-year-old Coloco was waived Wednesday after the Raptors traded Pascal Siakam to Indiana in exchange for three players. Coloco has not played this season because of what the Raptors called a respiratory issue. Drafted 33rd overall out of Arizona in 2022, Coloco appeared in 58 games with Toronto last season, averaging 3.1 points per game, 2.9 rebounds, and 1.0 blocks. And the NBA stat of the day, 35. The Miami Heat trailed the Toronto Raptors by 35 points at the half on Wednesday night, the largest halftime margin in franchise history. The Heat went on to lose 121-97. And now in NHL news, Pasternak's hat trick carries Bruins from Boston. David Pasternak scored on the game's opening shift and had two insurance goals late in the third period, and the Boston Bruins held off the red-hot Colorado Avalanche 5-2 on Thursday night. 
Jake DeBrusque and Jacob Lauko also scored for the Bruins, who won their third straight and improved to 8-1-3 in their last 12 games. Colorado's Kale McCarr collected one assist but fell a point short of tying Hall of Famer Bobby Orr as the fastest defenseman to collect 300 NHL career points. Orr did it in his 279th career game on December 13, 1970. McCarr played his 279th game on Thursday and now has 299 career points. Sabres 3, Blackhawks nothing. Uko Pekka Lukonen made 20 saves for his second straight shutout and host Buffalo beat Chicago in a game that was postponed today because of snow. Senator 6, Canadiens 2. Tim Stutzel had a goal and two assists. Junus Corpizolo stopped 21 shots and host Ottawa beat Montreal. Flyers 5, Stars 1. Owen Tippett scored twice, including a highlight reel goal late in the third period. Scott Lawton made a penalty shot, and streaking Philadelphia defeated visiting Dallas for its fifth straight victory. Capitals 5, Blues 2. TJ Oshie had a hat trick against his old team. Dylan Strom added a goal and an assist, and host Washington beat St. Louis. Lightning 7, Wild 3. Nikita Kucherov had three assists to reach 500 for his career. Anthony Cirelli scored twice and host Tampa Bay beat Minnesota for its fourth straight win. Oilers 4, Kraken 2. Warren Fogel had two goals. Leon Dreisel had a goal and three assists and host Edmonton rallied to beat Seattle and extend its winning streak to a franchise record 12 games. Maple Leafs 4, Flames 3. Austin Matthews had a hat trick to push his NHL leading goals total to 37 and added an assist in Toronto's comeback victory over host Calgary. Golden Knights 5, Rangers 1. Ivan Barbar... Barbashev had his first two-goal game of the season and Logan Thompson made 29 saves as host Vegas beat New York. Predators 2, Kings 1. Ryan O'Reilly had a power play goal and an assist. Gustav Nyquist also scored and visiting Nashville beat Los Angeles. And finally, Canucks 2, Coyotes 1. Dakota Joshua and Elias Pettersson each scored to lead host Vancouver past Arizona. In other NHL news, Wild lose Spurgeon for rest of the season. From St. Paul, Minnesota, Wild defenseman Jared Spurgeon will miss the remainder of the season because of injuries to his hip and back that will require separate surgeries. Wild general manager Bill Guerin announced Thursday that Spurgeon will have the procedure on his left hip done February 6th and undergo the operation on his back approximately four weeks later. The Wild said Spurgeon is expected to be fully recovered before the start of training camp in September. The 34-year-old Spurgeon, who is the team captain, has played in only 16 games this season due to his injuries. He has five assists and no goals. Spurgeon has spent his entire 14-year career with the Wild. He posted a plus 32 rating in each of the last two seasons. Gaudet back in league with Blues. 
from Washington. After spending more than one and a half years in the minors, Adam Gaudet is back in the NHL. He's determined to make his late, latest chance count. Gaudet played Thursday night in his first game in the league since April 2022, suiting up for the St. Louis Blues at the Washington Capitals. Once a top prospect, the 27-year-old center, who is with his fifth organization, believes he's a much better all-around player than he was before at this level. I'm a completely different player than I was then, and I'm excited to showcase that, Gaudet said after the Blues morning skate. And the NHL stat of the day... 8. Florida's Sam Reinhart scored a special teams goal for the eighth straight time in the Panthers' 3-2 loss, pardon me, 3-2 loss Wednesday against the Detroit Red Wings. Reinhart broke Pavel Buer's franchise record, set in the 2000-2001 season for the longest streak of special teams goals in franchise history. A few brief NFL stories. Belichick plans second interview with Falcons from Atlanta. The Atlanta Falcons are planning for a second interview with Bill Belichick after talking with Philadelphia Eagles offensive coordinator Brian Johnson for the head coaching vacancy on Thursday. Belichick made the Falcons his first known interview on Monday since leaving the New England Patriots. Belichick won a record six Super Bowls in his 24 seasons with New England. He will be the first candidate to have a second interview with Atlanta. The team has not disclosed details of the second meeting with Belichick, who is 71. The Falcons are looking for a successor to Arthur Smith, who was fired after his third straight 7-10 finish. The plans for a 7-10 finish. The plans for a second meeting between the Falcons and Belichick indicates an agreement on Belichick's possible role in player personnel decisions, should he accept the job. Belichick had control of player personnel with New England. Steelers. Mike Tomlin, Tomlin remains on go in Pittsburgh, both in 2024 and likely beyond. The NFL's longest tenured head coach said Thursday he plans on returning to the Steelers for an 18th season, brushing aside speculation that he was on the cusp of burning out and considering taking a step back. Senior Bowl. Tennessee Titans defensive line coach Terrell Williams and New York Jets defensive coordinator Jeff Ulbrich will serve as head coaches at the Senior Bowl, which will be played on February 3rd to cap a week-long audition for NFL prospects. Chargers. Former Stanford University coach David Shaw interviewed for Los Angeles's opening. The Chargers announced the interview on Thursday. He is the 10th candidate to interview. Shaw did not coach last season and was an NFL Network analyst. And finally, Titans. Tennessee announced Thursday it had finished a virtual interview with Carolina Panthers offensive coordinator Thomas Brown for their head coaching vacancy. That makes him the sixth different person to talk to Tennessee about its open job. Brown is the second black coach to interview with the Titans, both by video. Now some tennis news from the Australian Open. Sabalenka Golf win in routes, head to fourth round. From Melbourne, Australia. Defending champion Arina Sabalenka and U.S. Open winner Coco Golf swept to commanding leap wins at the Australian Open on Friday to win the fourth round. Second seeded Sabalenka beat Lesia Tsurenko 
Six nothing, six nothing, in fifty-two minutes, while number four seeded Guelph dropped just two games in beating fellow American Alicia Parks six nothing, six two. Sabalenka, who won her first Grand Slam title here twelve months ago, has dropped just six games in three rounds. Last year, Iga Swiatek won so many sets six nothing, and this is one of the goals to try to get closer to her. Sabalenka joked, "I'm just super happy with the level I'm playing so far. Hopefully, I can just keep going like that or even better." The pair did not shake hands, as is the convention for Ukrainian players against opponents from Russia or Belarus, where Sabalenka is from. But Churenko congratulated Sabalenka verbally. Sabalenka will play Amanda Anisimova, who continued her comeback with a seven-five-seven. Pardon me, with a seven-five-six-four win over Paula Bedosa. Anisimova, who spent seven months out of the game last year for mental health reasons, hit 40 winners on her way to the fourth round. Sabalinka said she expects a tough match against Anisimova, who has won four of their five matches. Galf played an almost flawless match as she beat Parks in 61 minutes, making just eight unforced errors to the 34 of her less experienced opponent. Number four, Janik Sinner moved into the fourth round without losing a set, thanks to a 6-0, 6-1, 6-3 victory over Sebastian Baez. The Italian won 18 of 25 points at the net as he set up a fourth round match with 15-seeded Karen Kachinov, who beat Thomas Mechak 6-4, 7-6 in four, and 4-6 and 7-6 in five. Number seven, Stefanos Tsitsipas, no, Tsitsipas, was equally impressive, beating Luca Van Aschi 6-3, 6-0, and 6-4. He'll meet number 12, Taylor Fritz, who defeated Fabian Morozan 3-6, 6-4, 6-2, and 6-2. Ten-time Australian champion Novak Djokovic was in night action for the third match in a row, taking on Tomas Martin Echeverri. Local hope Alex de Minar played Flavio Caboli of Italy. In auto racing, Johnson Naus fittingly head into NASCAR Hall of Fame together. Jenna Fryer reports from Charlotte, North Carolina. There were many times following Jimmy Johnson's 83 career NASCAR wins when, trophy in hand and post-race obligations complete, his pending celebration would be instantly soured by the man who guided him to victory lane. Chad Naus wanted to extract the most out of Johnson all the time. And even after a win, the crew chief could still find areas of improvement. There were many times when we were in the media center collecting the trophy and we leave there and as soon as the door was shut, Chad is like, hey man, that second stint, what happened on the restart? What about this? We got to tighten it up, Johnson told the Associated Press. And I'm, I'd be like, give me until tomorrow, okay? We're leaving with the trophy. Tomorrow you can give me crap. Right now, don't. The push and pull between driver and crew chief worked for a record-tying seven cup championships, including an unprecedented five consecutive titles.
Johnson drove the now-built number 48 Chevrolet to two Daytona 500 victories, four wins at Indianapolis Motor Speedway, six at Johnson's home track in California, seven at Texas, eight at Charlotte, nine at Martinsville, and 11 at Dover. They were an unstoppable duo and will fittingly be inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame together on Friday night. Both are first ballot inductees and will be celebrated with Donnie Allison, an original member of the Alabama Gang, who is joining his brother Bobby in the hall. Allison, winner of 10 Career Cup races, has voted in on the Pioneer ballot. Janet Guthrie, the first woman to race in both the Daytona 500 and Indianapolis 500, is being inducted as the landmark award winner for her contributions to NASCAR. Allison and Naus last October spent time at Charlotte Motor Speedway reminiscing about their careers. Naus is now the vice president of competition for Hendrick Motorsports, where he and Johnson teamed for 81 of Johnson's 83 victories. And finally, in the PGA Tour from the American Express. Johnson scores 10 birdies to earn share of first-round lead. Greg Beecham reports from La Quinta, California. Zach Johnson embraced the pressure of being the U.S. Ryder Cup captain last year, even if the experience didn't go the way anybody on his team hoped. A few months later, Johnson is past all pressure and the second guessing, and those newly lightened shoulders might have been a factor in his sizzling round to start the American Express. Johnson made seven of his ten birdies on the front nine on the way to a 10-under-62 and a share of the lead with Sweden's Alex Noren after the first round in the Coachella Valley on Thursday. Johnson's 29 on the front nine was the lowest nine-hole score in his 493 career PGA Tour starts, and he needed only 10 putts to do it. He credited his strong start partly to an off-season of focused preparation after his release from the demands of the Ryder Cup captaincy. Put a lot of good work in as of late, Johnson said. Actually been a lot of normal golf work given what happened last year with what I was responsible for, which was awesome. Now it's time to get back to work. I've enjoyed the work. I've enjoyed the sweat. Postcard perfect desert conditions and the straightforward nature of this tournament's three courses unsurprisingly led to low scores from some of the world's top players. Rico Hoey and Christian Bezuidenhout are one shot back of the leaders, and 22 golfers shot 65 or better, including Patrick Cantlay, Xander Schaufle, Justin Thomas, and former champion Siwoo Kim. Johnson made six consecutive birdies to close out his front nine at La Quinta Country Club. He added three more birdies down the stretch, getting the 47-year-old off to a bogey-free start in his quest for his first PGA Tour victory since the 2015 British Open. La Quinta Country Club is legitimately one of the purest places we play on the PGA Tour year in, year out, Johnson said. The grass is, it almost looks fake. You... You, pardon me, if you have it going and you have some sort of rhythm and you're seeing the lines on the putting green because they're pure, you can put a number up. Love this place. I told the assistant pro today that if I broke 76 that I should get a free membership, but I don't think that's going to happen. That's unfortunate, but we'll keep working on them. And with just a few minutes left, we switch over to Ask Amy. 
pregnant 24-year-old struggles with disclosure. Dear Amy, I am a financially responsible and secure 24-year-old woman. A few months ago, I discovered that I am pregnant. The father of my baby is my longtime boyfriend, Tony, who became very upset when he learned about this unplanned pregnancy. I was upset too, and told me he would not have anything to do with the baby, and said that he would demand a paternity test. My dilemma now has to do with his parents. They are nice people, and I've known them for a couple of years. Tony has said that he won't tell his folks about the pregnancy until after the birth and paternity is established. There is no question that he is the father of this child, and I believe his folks should be told about the pregnancy. I don't want anything at all from them, but I assume they would want to know about the prospect of their first grandchild coming into the world. My folks know and are very supportive and happy. I'm wondering what you think I should do. From Unsure. Dear Unsure, I think you should let them know about your pregnancy. Their son might be panicking. He is definitely being a prized jerk about the prospect of becoming a father. He has the right to have the baby's paternity verified, but given that he has at this point walked away from parenthood, you have sole responsibility for this unborn child, which means that your judgment regarding disclosure should prevail. People do sometimes work their way back to accepting and enjoying their parenting relationship once the dust settles, and an honest, healthy, and positive relationship with your child's grandparents might help Tony to accept his child. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Friday, January 19th. I'm your reader, Mark Bedford. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thanks for listening.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. A decade ago, there were typically 20 earthquakes a year that were large enough to feel in the central and eastern U.S. But in 2015, there were over 1,000 of them. Why? It's mostly because we're pumping more water into the ground. The boom in U.S. oil and gas production over the last decade has brought many more oil wells, which also produce water. Most is naturally occurring in the formation, and some was injected by operators to allow or improve the recovery of oil and gas. In both cases, the water will likely have picked up salt and other minerals from the rock, making it many times saltier than seawater. Operators may re-inject this water to continue to liberate oil and gas, but more often, there's too much to handle. So it's trucked or piped to disposal wells, where it's pumped down into deep saltwater reservoirs. Adding large volumes of wastewater increases the pressure in these rock formations, which can allow natural faults to slip more easily than they normally would, causing earthquakes. To address these quakes, regulators and the petroleum industry are monitoring disposal wells and shutting down those that could cause damaging seismic activity. And they now think that managing wastewater injection more carefully should help. There's still more work to be done, and university research centers, like the Bureau of Economic Geology, are conducting major studies with the aim of minimizing the risk of earthquakes while maintaining the benefits of domestic energy production. For Earth Date, I'm Scott Tinker. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more Earth Date stories at earthdate.org. In Africa, five-year-old Cheru has no choice. She and millions like her must walk miles every day for dirty water. But together, we can end their walk by providing clean water close by. Instead of spending hours walking to get water that makes them sick, girls can be in a classroom that expands their minds and moms will gain back time to care for their families. Sons and daughters can grow up strong finally free of sicknesses caused by dirty water. At World Vision, care about clean water runs deep. Deep enough to reach one new person with clean water every 10 seconds. Because every child, every person, everywhere deserves clean water and the chance to rise to their full potential. It's true. When you just add water, you change a life. Learn more at worldvision.org.